You're listening to the Lean Built Podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm Andrew. In this podcast, we discuss our manufacturing companies, lean principles, and the freedom that we're pursuing in life and business. So one of my end of year purchases was a new forklift, new fork yes. truck. We had this built like a tank, 1979 liquid propane Datsun forklift that has just been bomb proof. It's awesome. The controls are simple and intuitive. I love everything about it, except that it really makes a lot of fumes and it's nasty to run in an enclosed space where we have people working. So we wanted to upgrade to something electric that was going to be quieter, that was not going to produce fumes. And we bought a refurbished 2016 crown forklift, stand up, not a walk behind. And it died two weeks after we received it. <laughs> it was just, it would not run. It would turn on, but it would not run. And so we were only a couple of weeks in and obviously it comes with some limited warranty because we were buying it from a licensed distributor. Okay. And so they were in the shop several times this past week, servicing that, trying to figure out what was going on with it. And it was so funny to have this tank of an old Datsun that just runs and runs and runs and runs. And then the newfangled electric one shows up. Yep. And before the end of the month, it's just croaked. It's just sitting there. Yeah. So we got it back up and running. It was some electronics problem. It wasn't a problem with one of the motors. Huh. It was control module issues. So they did have to swap out some parts and take part of the enclosure off and really get in the guts of the thing. But it's back up and running now. And it is, it's a little unnerving. The first time you drove your Tesla, did the lack of sound, did you oh. notice the lack of engine noise? Oh, it's definitely so. You know what? It's yes, it's quiet. That did not catch me off guard. But when I drove it off the lot, well, the first thing they do is they take you through a tutorial, like in the lot of the dealership. Then they say, let's go out on the road. Let's work through some like the autopilot features. And he said, hey, at this next light, we we're first up. When it turns green, I want you to floor it. Now keep in mind of the Model 3 performance, 0 to 60 and 3.1. I've not yep. felt acceleration like that. The fastest acceleration I've felt in my life that was shocking was this roller coaster at California Adventure next to the Disneyland theme park in Anaheim. It's faster than that. And so it was one of those experiences that just your brain doesn't know how to process the, those types of almost like 0.8G, something like that, and yep. no sound associated with that. Everything else in life. With speed is associated with power, loud, shaking, rumbling, that type of thing. It was different. And so I do get it. Like the fact that there's not the accompanying sounds that you're used to. Yeah. The other thing that I noticed that's interesting is when you change from just straight hydraulic to electric controls, yeah. Oh, yeah. there's a little bit of lag. Yes. In Big time. Everything on yep. the forklift. Uh -huh. Any adjustment to the forks, tipping the mast, sliding the forks side to side, all those things have a noticeably different response rate than I'm used to with our old forklift. Uh -huh. And that's going to be the hardest thing for me to learn. So Actually, does do the hydraulics on your forklift, when you pull a lever, does the motor then spool up? Um, like the hydraulic motor? On our old forklift, I think as long as the engine's running, all the hydraulics are just pressurized. And yeah. So it's very quickly responsive. Like you move the mast stick and it immediately starts moving. Just Yeah, it's feathering valves essentially. Yeah. That's you're, what's you're different just, about you're just redirecting pressure. 
Yeah, exactly. That's what's different about electric devices is on like our gas powered one. When I move the forks up, it's just opening a valve and the response is there. But on our electric Toyota, when I pull back, the hydraulic motor is then spooling up. It's a electric hydraulic motor. And then the valve is opening. So there is that lag. Yeah, very much, very much so. One of the drawbacks I don't hear a lot of people talking about. Now, we're not doing extremely sensitive work with that fork truck. But when you're moving a load, if it starts to become unbalanced and you need to trim it, that little bit of lag, the delayed outcome of the inputs you're putting in, you might oversteer. That's right. Because Mm -hmm. you're pressing the button. And the thing didn't happen, so you hold it down. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we'll see. That's a learning curve for me that I'm still working through. Mm-hmm. Uh, my employee, Brian, has been the one who spent more time on the new crown since it got here. So anytime we have to unload something off a semi, currently, he's the one who hops on and takes it on. Even though I know how to run it, I'm not comfortable on it yet. Yeah. I bought my Toyota used 2015, I believe, new batteries. That was important to me. Yes, for and, us, new batteries and new charger with this unit. Okay, yeah. Yeah, we got the an old charger. It was a used charger. I don't know what goes wrong with those, but regardless. But one of the things we discovered pretty quickly that I think I should have just told them you need to fix it or replace it is that one of the forks is bent. And so mm-hmm. every time you pick something up, it tilts by about two to three degrees. That's not it's, ideal. It's fine when you're doing a pallet, but we were picking up, what was it? Oh, we moved our pallet rack. You can, you can go in forks at the center of a giant pallet rack and pick it up. And we did that. And then this whole pallet rack is now tilted. It probably weighs 1,500 pounds all assembled and it tips and it wasn't, there's enough friction where it didn't slide. But if you had any type of movement, we were just moving it inches. If we had any movement across a rough parking lot, it would have definitely slid because of that. And so I'm thinking, can we take that one fork off? and bend it? Or can we take it off and take it to someone? I think that they're like hardened or something like that. Do you know anything about fork technology? I don't know anything about forks, but clearly if it got bent in the first place, it can get bent. Probably get bent back. Yeah. I don't see any visible bend marks or anything like that. I think it had been pieced together because I bought it from a company that refurbishes forklifts. So I think they probably went, oh, wow, look, these guys drilled a hole in the tip so the owner could put a ball in it and move his boat around the shop. Let's replace that. And then that fork didn't match the existing fork. That's how I speculate. Because it doesn't have enough power to bend a fork. That's why I'm speculating. It's You wouldn't bend a fork to begin with. Gotcha. Just a mismatch. Yeah, makes sense. So is your forklift up and running again? Yes, the crown is up and running. We had, I think we had three service tech visits. And it is up and running. And one of the things we did is since we're all new to that machine and its controls are very different Mm -hmm. from what I'm used to, we had them essentially throttle the speed that you can produce. So you can't get too zippy with it yet. We have some of those different modes locked down to the slowest setting because we're not in a hurry. Yeah. We're not going long distances. We're hopping on the forklift occasionally to move benches or pallets or receive things in. Yeah. We do not need to be zipping around a facility. And there's actually not a lot of open floor space. There's not a lot of room to run in, in our Mm -hmm. current shop with that fork truck. And so while we're getting used to the new controls, I didn't want anybody to be able to accidentally input way more throttle than they expect and have that thing Tesla S them. 
Yes. Into exactly. a wall or into a person. Yeah. Essentially you're, it's like digital training wheels when yep. it comes to speed. Yeah. Yep. Once the cover factor gets there and we finish going through updated forklift training with all the employees who were previously certified on the other machine, mm-hmm. then we can potentially turn those guards, open them up a bit. But at the moment, there's no place that I need to go in such a hurry that I need to have the machine running wide open. It just, yeah, it's not important to me right now. The, the Tesla term is your forklift is in chill mode. Yes. Love that. So yeah, glad to have that working. Glad it wasn't. They initially thought that there was something significantly wrong enough that they were going to have to come pick the fork truck up, take it away, work on it someplace else and bring it back. Thankfully, they were able to do all the service just on our floor, bring parts, take it apart right there and get it done. They thought they would have to take the mast off the machine to access some motor or something or other, oh, but yeah. it turned out not to need that. Yeah, good. Speaking of equipment, it's end of the year. Is the lathe topic behind you? The lathe topic is not behind me. The lathe topic is further out ahead of me. Okay. So at this point, what I decided to do is given the current situation where we have a lot of retail demand and we're staying busy, keeping up with that, I don't have time free to do all the extra stuff necessary to get that machine in, get it set up, get the work lined up, get the work, get the material and all the stuff that would have to happen to have that machine actually pull any weight and make a difference for us this calendar year, there just isn't room for it right now. Mm -hmm. And even though you can get great deals on equipment at the end of the year, usually, I don't feel that I've fully completed my research and due diligence on exactly which machines would be the best fit for our likely scope of work. And so I am holding off on that and we're spending some money and some time on upgrading things and adding features to our current machines. If you were to take the same amount of funds that you're considering for a big lathe and you invested into automation, robotics, what's your dream? Where would you put that? Well, that's a good question. The question of whether or not to get a dual spindle, single or double turret lathe or versus a B-axis machine, something like an Integrex or anything that's got an actual five-axis milling head in it. The question there is whether or not we really want to go down the path of trying to convert one or more of our verticals into semi-automated or automated cells, or just buy a machine that can be bar-fed and is essentially automated from the get-go. And I really don't have any interest in cobots. Cobots don't do anything for me. I'm not attracted by them. I don't look at them and go, that's cool tech. I want to have it. I really am completely indifferent to cobots. And oftentimes when I've watched cobots run, obviously, you mean when you go to IMTS, what you see in the Fanic booth is the most impressive select the specific application they picked to demonstrate their cobot slap between two robo drills, feeding them both at the same time so that the robots never stop moving. It's feeding the left machine, then feeding the right machine, then feeding the left machine. Well, that that entire application is cherry-picked to give this impression of these robots will create unbelievable throughput and productivity in your shop. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not untrue, but they're showing you the best case scenario of a part that's designed around that. Yeah. In a clean trade show environment as well. Right. Yeah. Where the guy running the machine's wearing a yellow suit jacket. Everything about it's awesome. Yeah. But 
when I've seen cobots in actual shops, which has not been that often, I don't go to a lot of other shops, I should go to more. When I've seen cobots running, my impression is often that looks slow. I really hope it's super steady and reliable. Mm-hmm. Because if it's that slow and it's ever unreliable, I would hate that. Mm-hmm. Like just watching the robot open the door and then come in and blow off the part and then pick up the part and then turn over and blow off the vice jaw and then come out of the machine and turn around and set the part down and then go over to the next rack and pick a part up and go into the machine and set it down and position it and then release it and then come out and then close the door. And you're like, ah. Yeah. It's aggravating to watch in person because it is. It's watching the tortoise go against the hare and the hare is a human. Hare's fast. Hare's inefficient. Hare is overconfident. <laughs> it takes long breaks. Yeah. Over, the hair, the hair is highly variable. Yes, that's right. So we've been successfully using our UR10E cobot for, oh gosh, four years straight, three years, something like that. I, can't, I really can't remember, but we're just now finding that it's starting to have issues and we can't pinpoint exactly why. For example, it'll pick up a part. First of all, if you've seen the video, it picks up a part from a stack that has no order, symmetry, or relation to the rest of the parts above it or below it. So it may be put on to straight from the saw. The robot goes in, picks it up, drops it off on a black background table with this material called duvetine. It's used in the motion picture industry as a blackout material, very light absorbing. It goes up, We have a camera that takes an image of it. It identifies the shape and the center. It picks it up in the center and puts it into the machine. But what we've been finding is it's been putting it into the machine inconsistently. So I'm going, okay, why is that happening? And the only way to figure that out is if we have a guy standing right there watching literally every part, hoping for it to go bad. My other idea is just to put a GoPro there. Like I walked by the other day and I went, hey, Alex is flashing red. Oh, geez. You get lulled into the consistency and the reliability of a robot that when it is flashing red and there's an error, you don't even know when it screwed up because you didn't hear it like opening and closing. It's quiet. It's slow. It's, it doesn't have a big human impact. You just don't notice it. And so he went, I don't know. Well, I try and figure it out. And another guy is Kyle that's an operator on our floor. Kyle's on break. He doesn't know how to run the robot. He knows how to operate it, turn it on and off, set it up, but not to diagnose like what's going on in the code. And it's one of those things. It's like, okay, this is the story that's rarely told that we've had a completely reliable process for many, many months or years, but now we're starting to see inconsistencies. Why is that? I don't think people are going to talk about this. And certainly if they are talking about it, it's not public. It's with an integrator. It's with their team and they just fix it and move on. But you know, us as a small manufacturer, we don't have a robot guy on hand. We don't have an integrator that certainly if we did have any type of agreement, it expired years ago. So we just need to tackle it. And the camera is a third party from Robotique, great company, plugged easily into the UR ecosystem. But what do we do from here? I guess we just keep trying it out and go, you know what? Every now and then, now we have to realize that it misloads a part. 
Now, the other part of it is I also said in my DSI Fusion speech, it's not about programming the robot what to do right. You program the robot with what to do when all the variables are not 100% correct. So when it misloaded it, our probe in the VF2 goes in and probes it and it's off center by an allowable tolerance. Then the VF2 just alarms out, hence the red flashing light. Program around those things. Those are the conversations that people don't have in those trade show discussions. Almost all the cool solutions you see at IMTS, there are specific applications that those are just amazing for. Mm -hmm. But the idea that any one approach, oh, you just need to add robots and you'll gain efficiency. Maybe, maybe not. Mm -hmm. You don't just sprinkle a little bit of automation on top and all of a sudden have Michelin star food. Mm -hmm. You have to have everything about the process, the prep of the stock and the, everything has to work to make that consistent enough for the robot to be able to do its job. Yep. That's right. So personally, if I was spending a couple hundred thousand dollars on automation, the first piece of automation I would get would be an automatic saw. Yeah. We don't have one currently and that's on our to buy list for this spring. I'm not trying to rush and get it right now. I can wait. I don't need it right now. So it's one of those things we could end of year purchase and expense, but we would be buying it before we needed it in order to expense it. And I'm in favor of buying things we need that we can use immediately and expensing them now, but I'm not in favor of pre-buying things mm -hmm. that we don't have a need for. Yeah. Auto saw, bar feeder, that simple automation, that thing that makes the day go by just a little bit quicker, a little bit easier. That's where I think companies like of our size really need to lean in. And probably the, it's not technically automation because it doesn't do motion. It prevents us from having to do motion. Adding light curtains in place of the doors on two of our R450s was one of the best investments we've made this year. Talk about because, that. I have not heard that. Okay. So this particular question, we have a couple of unique factors that make this work well for us. The first one is we have a matched pair of twin R450s. They're identical, identically fixtured, identically tooled up, same programs run on both, and they're running the same organization of work coordinate systems, everything. They're twins. And they're dry machining only. They've never mm -hmm. had coolant in them. We actually didn't even unpack the tanks. When the machines arrived, we left the tanks palletized, and I sold them to another shop that runs Brothers and wanted the larger tanks that we had. Great. Get them out of my hair. But the operator door on those little twin pallet brother machines, we would be opening and closing that door sometimes 300, 350 times a day because mm. we're running a lot of really short cycles. A lot of our cycles are under three minutes. And so if you're running tons of cycles and you have to open and close the door every single cycle, it's not that any one open and close is an inordinate amount of time or a ton of effort, but if we could group it all and say, okay, if we could just chunk it all to the end of the day and say, okay, now for the last hour of the day, all you're going to do is open and close the door 400 times. <laughs> That's a great point. Then you would more clearly appreciate how much time you're freaking wasting throughout the day doing that. Yes. And we had wanted to, when, we, when I bought those machines, I had been told that I could spec them with light curtains and that we would be able to leave that outside door open 
Because the only real issue, the only time there's a safety question is when the pallet, the QT table is rotating mm-hmm. to switch which table is active under the spindle, you do not want somebody to be able to lean into the loading area. And if you have a light curtain and you break that plane and it just stops the machine immediately, that's fine. We don't have any missed control issues. That's one of the other reasons why you'd run with the door closed is because the air volume inside the machine, if you're running coolant, is going to be full of mist. And even if you're running a mist collector, you don't want the machine just able to spill mist out into the space. And that's actually one of the other things we're spending some end of your money on is adding some mist away units to two of our machines. Nice. But we bought the light curtains and then we were told, oh, you can't install those unless you also put auto doors on the machine. And I'm like, really? And they're like, yeah, you're not supposed to run light curtains with doors open. You're supposed to run light curtains and then have auto doors so that the light curtain prevents the auto door from closing on you. Yeah, that's lawyer speak. I get it. And it, it makes total sense. Yeah, it makes sense. But there's a difference between what you are allowed to do and what Andrew Henry, the owner of these machines, is going to do. And so we rolled our own. We did the install ourselves. Mm-hmm. And the first day we had it operational, one of my machine operators came over to me at the end of the day and goes, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. He's like, I did not anticipate how much I was going to notice not having to do that step at all. Mm-hmm. It's actually, it's the anti-automation. We invested in equipment to allow us to no longer have to move something. I love that. And it's been fantastic. And the real advantage for us was not that it bought back an extra 10 seconds of time so that we could speed up the cycle and get parts done 10 seconds sooner. It gives the operator 10 seconds more room in cycle in that cell because they're forming and cooling and inspecting and then loading the form plastic parts for trimming all in a single one-piece flow cell right at the machine. Mm -hmm. If the person has to hustle the pace in order to have the next part pressed and demolded and cooled and ready to go into the machine, if they have to hurry, the chance that something's going to be a problem is just heightened and it's Mm -hmm. more stress. And so that extra 10 seconds allowed them to work at a more sustainable pace inside the cell because they've got 10 less seconds of handling time in every cycle. So we left the CNC programs completely alone and the operator can just relax just Mm -hmm. a little bit and they've got an extra 10 seconds to QC the parts coming off the machine to not have to be wound up quite as tight to make the whole thing balance. Mm -hmm. And the immediate quality of life feel of that was this cell now feels like it runs more easily instantly. Right. Man, I love that. Okay. So again, going back to that talk that I gave a couple months ago. So one of the things like that I said, my favorite automation is simple automation, but this takes that to the next level. The best type of automation and I define then that speech like automation is simply automatic motion that a human doesn't do. This is like next level or ground level. Even, the best automation is no automatic motion. Automatic non-motion. Automatic non-motion. Oh my gosh, look at that. That's one of our lean terms, wasted motion. Oops, <laughs> light curtain well, eliminated the waste of motion. Yeah, and every month... I should actually do the math. I'll do the math for next time. I'll write myself a note. 
I want to I want to come back to the next episode with an estimate on time saved on a per month basis. Uh huh. Let me ask you this: so every cycle, they're getting how many shells? Are you getting two holsters? It depends on the part. Usually, okay. it's either one or two. For more compact holsters, we nest them in pairs. For full size guns, we usually run them as singles. Okay, all right. So that there'd be a factor you'd have to figure in there. So yeah, how many? And my, then you. The number I want to come back with is if we've run X number of machine cycles in the past four weeks, and every time we ran a machine cycle, we saved an average of 12 seconds mm-hmm. by not having to open the door and close the door. The other thing we changed is we actually hung an air gun. We suspended an air gun mm-hmm. just above the bulkhead of the QT table so that the operator doesn't have to reach down to a hook and pick up an air gun and blow the chips off the part. The mm-hmm. air gun is pre-positioned right where it needs to be aimed at the pallet that's going to come out under it. And they just have to reach in and trigger it and then, and then take let the parts go. off. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. And so if we run those two things side by side, because we made those changes at the exact same time and say, okay, bring a pallet out, pick up the air gun off the hook, blow it off, then swap the part and close the door and then stop the timer. I want to see how many seconds we save per cycle, multiply that by cycles run per month and see how many hours a month this little thing, this little change is saving us every month. Yeah. Wow. It suddenly makes me want to run machines dry. Oh, dry machining is cool. We can run some of our cast iron dry, but it's cast iron is very pungent when it's cut. Actually, there's a fixture Friday video that we shot some slow motion video and you see we're machining dry and you see the chips oxidizing in midair and it looks like little fireworks. And I always can tell like when I walk into the shop in the morning, ah, smells like we're making road devices. And sure enough, it's just the pungent smell of cast iron. So we run everything wet just to cut down on that. But I don't know. Gosh, that, oh man. It's Where fun. did I put a light curtain? That's what I'm wondering. Light curtains are awesome. Yeah. And really, it, as a kind of tool, a light curtain is, has no moving parts. It can increase speed. It can increase quality. It can increase safety. Mm-hmm. It can increase almost any of the things that are our lean priorities. Mm-hmm. And it does that by eliminating the additional effort involved in other less effective forms of doing whatever it is you're doing with the light curtain. Yeah, that's right. Even like we're getting some new presses built, some new pneumatic presses for for forming some of our plastic parts. And it's very common to have like a lot of machines, you have to have two hand tie downs. You have to simultaneously trigger two buttons spaced far apart that are outside the work envelope. So you can't have any appendages in the machine. Right. But even there, all that means is you're touching those two buttons at the same time. It doesn't actually guarantee that nothing's in the machine that shouldn't be there. That's right. Mm -hmm. And the idea of going, oh, well, maybe eventually we move to a system where there's just a light curtain around this little press and it could be foot switch triggered. Super easy. Mm -hmm. But it can't be activated unless the light curtain is unbroken. Right. And then you don't have to have your hands in any particular place. Mm-hmm. You just can't have them inside the beam. Yeah, okay. So really quick, because I'm designing something in my head. The light curtain, as long as you're not breaking it, it just sends a closed door signal to the machine. Yes. 
And then when you break it, it just flips one to a zero and says, doors open. Yep. Gosh. So simple. I love it. Been great. We've made so many little improvements in our forming cells. Just this past week, we had to run one job that we hadn't run in months and months and months and months. And the program had never even been loaded onto those new machines. We had to go back to the one of the old speedios. We had only a single copy of the fixture. It was set up with an older setup for our workhorse system. It was just, it was a legacy thing we'd not run in a long, long time. And you have to open and close the door and there's no suspended air gun and all these little improvements that we've made were not present. Mm-hmm. And one of the operators from one of our 450s was running it on, an S- on that S700 and he was running like 20 parts, tiny job, sprint mm-hmm. run, done, and we won't need to run it again for another six months. But he finished up those 20. He's like, oh man, I forgot that this is what it used to be like for everything we ran. Yeah. It's great. Opening and closing the door every time, picking the air gun up off the hook every time. The machine has to wait while you load and unload. There's no twin table. You can't have the machine cutting. So all your load and unload time is in addition to your cycle time, not elided with your cycle time. Yeah. It re-highlighted for him how significant those improvements had been. When you have to go back and do it the old bad way, you go, oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Yikes. So that's the thing. It's like when we have people come in and tour the shop, it, every year we do a tour with the local university, Cal State University, Northridge, their race team, their FSAE race team. And these are students that maybe have worked in a manufacturing facility, but I usually typically spend an hour with them. Or even if it's a customer, it's a customer walks in, they're like, oh my gosh, I just drank from a fire hose. It's just high level. But they don't realize it's, it's those little incremental improvements that when you look at it today, it seems like no, I can't do that. That's It's overwhelming. I could never be to the level of that shop. But I never dreamed that our shop would look like it does today. It's just been little incremental things, dreaming, okay, we can't do that yet, or I don't want to do it yet. Let's do it when we move to the next location. And that's the type of stuff like a light curtain or simple automation, auto saw. Those are those like big little steps forward that take yeah. you to the next level. I mentioned in the last podcast that we're going to move one of the CNC machines because we actually... With us buying our EC400 horizontal with the pallet pool, it has taken so much work off of all the other machines that we literally sold a VF2 that we hadn't run in weeks and weeks and weeks and have not missed it. There's a VF2 SS right next to it that I think I bought in 2019, 2020, something like that. And it's one of those machines that like now it's kind of like the new or the next machine to leave. But now we've got this space of the old machine. We're going to move a machine that was near the door that made Rotovice parts and move it over probably 15, 20 yards down so that we can have a closer cell. And then we'll move a grinder from one corner closer to the saw because one of my, my guy, Juan, we call him like start to finish. He's the alpha and the omega. He starts by sawing raw materials, supplies that to the shop on our auto saw, and he's our CNC grinder guy. And so he can do everything in between, like high output type of guy. But he's walking all over. He's walking like crazy. So I'm like, okay, let's take that VF that he often doesn't run, move it over 15 yards, put the grinder right next to the saw, which I have mixed feelings about because the saw area is typically dirty. It's by the Mm -hmm. back door where we bring in the material. And the back door, especially like a day like today, we have this thing called the Santa Ana winds that we have gusts like. 30, 40, 50 miles an hour. It just gets dusty back there and dust and grinding don't mix. 
So I'm trying to figure out like, how can we move things so that we're not wasting motion? So other people like you, you take all that wasted motion and you add it to the end of the day, that leads to waiting by either someone else in the shop or worse yet, the customer. How can we reconfigure this in a lean environment so that we can both have quality, so we can have simplicity, safety is kind of not a factor with these machines, but you know, we can essentially increase the speed. That's the type of yep. stuff that I spend a lot of time thinking on my Wednesdays. Yeah, the mental exercise of this little job is annoying, but if I have to do it a bunch of times, if I grouped them all, mm -hmm. how collectively annoying would this be if I had to take this all at once? Yes. And that really often helps me clarify whether or not it's worth investing time and money to solve that. Because it might be that I'm doing a job that I don't normally do when I find some little thing in it that's like a thorn in my paw and go, oh, this is annoying. Mm -hmm. ah, not a big deal. I'm only doing this today. I'm not going to do this again. And then going, wait a minute, how many times a week do my employees have to do this? If this thing gets done 25 times a week, how annoying would it be to do this thing 25 times back to back? And would that motivate me to fix it? Mm -hmm. And almost always the answer is immediately yes. You touched on something like that pain is, it's not, here, let me use this analogy. I saw this thing on, I think it was YouTube shorts of the pull-up bar challenge where I didn't realize this. I've not tried it, but a guy sets up a pull-up bar in a public space and he has people hang for 60 seconds. And if they do, they yep. get 20 bucks. And I was completely surprised that the majority of people could not hang on a pull-up bar. Not pull-ups, just hang for yep. 60 seconds. Now, if you told me, hey, I want you to hang from a pull-up bar for 10 seconds, 25 times in one day, anyone could do that. Yep. I would speculate you could, but I don't think anyone could hang for 250 seconds all at once. That's it's what you're really describing. I, I've seen a similar challenge to that. And actually part of my workout routine that I'm not doing currently, but have been doing before, just as part of my warmups, shoulder stretches and other things. And then usually a 60 or 70 second static hang. Mm -hmm. And the last 10 seconds of that hang are really hard, uh. but n almost nobody can hang for two minutes. Okay. It's like the drop-off cliff becomes extremely steep. Mm -hmm. The people who have the grip strength to hang out there for a minute, you're pretty much gassed out wow. in most cases. And if you hang for a minute and then you try to push yourself to see how much further you can go, when I've done it, it's not much further. It's like, oh, 10 more seconds, then I just fall off the bar. Mm. I don't think enough people, you can avoid the pain, but the pain is still there. And in business, I go into different shops or I get calls where they're very direct. They're like, Jay, I've been watching your videos for a long time. I'm over it. I'm sick of it. How do we do this lean thing? They've been hanging from the pull-up bar for 80 seconds, not yeah. 10 seconds, eight times a day for the past decade. In costs and managing the company, one of the places that this is the sort of grouping up the pain so you see the whole dose all at once is a really useful tool for me, but it's also the financial death by a thousand cuts. Mm -hmm. Your business can be bleeding out small, seemingly inconsequential amounts of money in hundreds of places every week. And uh, I'm trying to think, I think it was, might've been Paul Van Meter from Pro Shop. I remember hearing him talking about one time, he asked, they had a potential client, somebody who was considering moving onto their ERP platform and was concerned about the cost because an ERP is not cheap. A good right. ERP is not at all cheap. And 
what he said was, go tally up how much money you guys have spent in expedite fees over the past six months to rush materials, tooling, work holding, packaging, figure out how much extra money you spent because your current ERP or your current system, they might not even have had an ERP yet at that point. Your current system did not warn you in time. And then you realized, oh no, we need 10 of this tool to finish this job because we have to replace the tool every 25 parts. And we only have two and the system didn't warn us. And now we're going to miss the deadline. We have to overnight air Mm -hmm. eight of those tools here. And he said, when they went back and actually tallied up how much they'd been spending on expedited shipping, they were shocked to see that they were spending thousands of dollars a quarter Mm -hmm. on expedited shipping. And realizing that all those thousand cuts, you don't appreciate them. The more diffused they are out across time and across the organization, the less any one person really feels the pain of them and is motivated to fix them. But trying to group those things for myself mentally, realizing that in the past two weeks, I've spent well over $60,000 in shipping. Mm -hmm. Just easily, not even a question. And when we were shipping years ago, when I was shipping a handful of packages a day, the difference between a $5 label and a $6.50 label, I was like, who cares? Yep. But when you're shipping thousands and thousands and thousands of orders, every little gain puts a significant amount of money in play. Yep. Every little cost increase puts a significant amount of money in play. Mm -hmm. And all those changes, it's not really worth spending $1,000 to save five bucks here and save five bucks there, but spending $1,000 to save $5,000 over the course of the year, Mm -hmm. the math becomes obvious, but not unless you group the things. Yeah, that's right. If you treat them individually, no one of them rises to the level of demanding immediate action, mm-hmm. but collectively it's like, oh, wow, this needs to get dealt with. This is a problem. Yeah. It reminds me of our respective business owners groups, Visage and Convene, and how all it takes is one poor business decision or one, not even, it's just a decision that's uninformed and how that can cost you tens of thousands of dollars, which is far greater than your annual member dues. And so, you know, that if I employ or terminate someone improperly and it costs me, you know, like 50K in penalties or a lawsuit, something like that's, that's a pain. That's a big pain that I would feel, but I can run those scenarios by a CEO group and go, whoa, 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 that's a red flag. You better get an HR consultant in on that. Well, that's going to cost me 500 bucks. You better get an HR consultant in on that. It'll cost you way more than 500, that type of thing. It's next level entrepreneurial thinking to to look at the cumulative, to be able to take the cumulative pain that may not necessarily manifest or the cumulative pain that your people experience and lump it together and look at the end result. Like that's next level. That's a great exercise for an entrepreneur. Yeah. It's the old joke. If you think using a lawyer is expensive, try not using a lawyer. Yeah, I love that. (laughs) Ah. Hey, check this out. I got to show this to you. So on video, I'm holding up 
it looks like it's about the size of a cushion. It's made from wool. It's handmade. It's one of the coolest gifts I've received. So one of my employees, Armando, he's a very quiet guy, very productive. I wish I had 20 Armandos. He's one of the best. Actually, Armando, I think I've talked about him before because my other guy, John, when we were looking to hire years ago, I said, so John, like, do you have any contacts? Who do you know that we should have here? And he said, Armando. Is yeah, Armando. Yes, yeah, so we got Armando. So Armando went back to Mexico. First time in three years. He went for three weeks. We missed him terribly. He came back. It turns out his family, he comes from a family of rug makers that is like about three to four generations deep. They made Whoa. like this beautiful wool Pearson work holding logo rug. And I'm cherishing it to the point where like it, it could be a doormat. Put it on the floor and stuff. We're not putting it. No, I th- I'm pretty sure we're going to frame it because I just want to honor him. And it's like, I didn't get into this business to say, I want to employ dozens of people and be like a one way, always like, you know, I'm paying you, I'm training you, I'm bonusing you, that type of thing. Like being an owner is very much a thankless, unrewarding from at least your employees. It's, I would say most owners over at the end of their career, most of their headaches are based on the relationships and the people they employ. That's just the fact. So I was super touched that he would go make it unannounced and bring it. And it feels like something it's beautiful. You can tell it's handmade. It was made with care and it's made by this multi-generational family in Mexico. It was really cool. So it was one of those few things that I don't think I could buy. You can't buy it here. It's super genuine. I'd have to go into Mexico, but it's like one of those priceless things that it just really made me feel good. That's so, super cool. Yeah. So we'll put it on the wall. Maybe I'll show it in yep. the video. That'd be neat. Yeah. That'd be cool. Let's see. There was one other thing that I had on my desk just a minute ago that I wanted to mention to you. Oh, it was... We talked about paper travelers. I'm still trying to figure out a way to have more of our job management be paperless. Mm-hmm. And this is the elegance of physical systems is in a lot of ways, I think almost insurmountable. There are certain things digital does really, really well, really, really well. But there are other things that it just can never do as well as a physical system does. And we've been trying to figure out a way to decentralize more of the knowledge about which jobs are highest priority when and why. If we've got 30 active jobs in the system in our ERP at any given moment, they're not all equally high priority. They don't all share the same due date. They don't share the same priority setting. And they may or may not involve specialized skills from certain people who may or may not be there that day. Not all jobs are equally runnable every day because not all of our staff is full-time. And being able to have everybody know how to go with the flow and prioritize the right things at the right time. Right now, we top-down manage that. I keep track of that. I decide the priorities and I let the shop staff on the floor know. And oftentimes, that's just manual. I just walk around and tell people, hey guys, after we finish this job, I've just reordered the pending jobs on the board because we do a physical pickup system. I print off travelers for the jobs. We post them in a grid structure where highest priority is top left and jobs go down and across in decreasing priority and lead time and due date window so that people can at a glance just look at the board and go, okay, the thing I should be working on is those travelers up in that corner and the stuff down there I can leave for later. But I really want to find a way ideally to have less paper on the floor because it can get misplaced And it's an artifact. If you create a job for 30 units and you put it in a production and then you realize, 
oh, you know what? We actually should make more of that. And you edit the job. And in the system, you've raised the job from 30 to 50 units. You have to then go find that paper traveler, chuck it, print a new one. You can't, it's an artifact. Once it's made, you can't change it. I haven't come up with a good way to do this yet. We're thinking about putting up a large digital bulletin board on the wall in Bay 3 and pulling some kind of values via API out of our ERP and running them through Airtable and then formatting our own essentially digital priority board that anybody can see at any given moment. Because when you're in on your iPad and you're in the ERP and you're clocked into an operation and you're entering parts and picking inventory and doing all that stuff, you're looking through a straw. Yeah. that I was just going to say, that's the problem. You don't have good scope. Right. And that scope question of, I want everybody to be able to, at a glance, see the 30,000 foot view. Where can I show that to them? What information is required for that view to actually be actionable, Mm -hmm. to direct their choices for what they work on next? And how can I make that so accessible to them that it's not a thing that they will have to remember to go looking for? We just recently redid some of our company emails, restructured things and what ended up happening was I had an additional email address that I was going to be responsible for checking on periodically, but I hadn't sat down and gone through the hassle of linking it into my Apple mail and into my phone, which meant I had to remember to open a window and go log in to look for messages in that inbox. And after a few weeks of forgetting to do that, and like once week, be like, oh, I should, I should go check that and go check it. Like, oh, there's a message there from Tuesday that I should have answered. It's been sitting there for three days. I should have gotten to that before now. I just kicked myself. I mean, you idiot. Mm -hmm. Sit down and take the time to go through the account setup and the two-step verification and all that stuff. Get this LinkedIn so that anytime a random email shows up there, because it's not a high volume inbox, anytime an email shows up there, it has to go to your phone. It has to be in a place where you cannot miss it. You have to have this show up somewhere where you're going to trip over it. Mm -hmm. And finding ways, physical systems, you can physically, you can put them in places where you can't avoid seeing them. Yes. And digital systems, the amount of data that can just be just around the corner, just out of sight, out of mind Mm -hmm. is terrifying. Yeah. So we have... I think we've talked about how we were on, what was it? Say, oh, Freshdesk. Yep. And we had used for CRM on the back end, we used Zoho for many years, but it's built by programmers for programmers. Terrible, terrible front end. To recap the story, we went over to Freshdesk. It wasn't as powerful. Went back to Zoho. In the meantime, they had facelifted it, brought in some AI capability. So really happy with it now, but it's got this one thing. It's got that bell in the top right corner. That's a notification bell that we just need to tweak because everyone ignores it. Because if I jump in there on a customer service ticket and I see 48 notifications and I go through and it says, Manny closed a ticket, Manny closed a ticket, Carlos reopened a ticket. And it's just like, that is noise. That has nothing to do with me. And then one in 40 is Manny mentioned you on a ticket or Manny assigned a ticket to you. That's where it gets problematic with these digital solutions. Yeah. The James Carville, if you say 10 things, you've said nothing. Right. If you have too many notifications, you have no notifications. Exactly. 
Yep. If your email inbox shows 3,200 unread messages and your texts show 240 unopened texts, you drown in the clutter. You can't get out of it. It's noise. Yep. That, that reminded me, the last thing I wanted to mention real quick is AI. One of my clients, Filster, Holsters, Filster.com, P-H-L-S-T-E-R, has been working for a while now on building what I think is legitimately the first really functional digital assistant in the concealed carry holster space. And they were able to do it because they've been creating a lot of long form content, hundreds of hours of video, tens of thousands of words of detailed blog posts and articles. And they were able to essentially sandbox an AI and train it on an enormous amount of relevant material that they have created over years Mm. as experts in that field. Even like taking all the, a ton of YouTube videos and transcribing them and then putting them into the knowledge base for that AI. And it is really extraordinary. I'm tied in with their customer service team because we're the warranty fulfillment side of their operations. We do all their retail shipping. Anytime a customer breaks something, loses something, needs a follow-up shipment, they tag us on those fresh test tickets and our shipping team or I, depending on who they tagged. If it's a technical question, they normally tag me. If it's just a replacement item, they tag the shipping team. But the AI is so good that we're using it internally, that yeah. we're using it as a reference tool for ourselves Yep. because the amount of content in the knowledge base has gotten so wide and so deep that even my ability to remember where to find the answer to a specific technical question, it's faster for me to ask the AI the question and have it locate the answer and point me to it than it is for me to try to find it myself. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's, it's really cool. But everybody thinks chatbots suck because website chatbots suck. Yeah, of course. I have literally never been on a website that had just a generic, oh, there's a chatbot feature on this website. Let's just turn it on. It's like, welcome to so-and-so. And then all it has is, it's like pulling the string on Woody. <laughs> there's a snake in my boots. <laughs> Who poisoned? Someone's poisoned the water hole. There's nothing else you can get them to say. It can't take you anywhere useful and it just clutters the screen. You just ignore it. Mm-hmm. And so I think almost everybody's assumptions are that chatbots are fundamentally uninformed, useless pieces of technology that are obstructive. They're just there as a friction tool to try to prevent you from making your way all the way to customer service. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And because the expectations are so astronomically low, just everyone expects chatbots to be terrible. Mm-hmm. It's taking a while for this really, really good one to catch on because most people don't try to talk to it. Mm-hmm. It's there and it, it knows so much more about the relevant topic than any other automated thing I've ever talked to, it's wild. Mm-hmm. Wow. And I look at that and go, I think we're going to see some really interesting companies in the machining and manufacturing space. Because like when I pick up a big tooling catalog, I don't know, Iskar. Mm-hmm. If I go, I wonder if Iskar has an appropriate cutting tool or if Mitsubishi has a cutting tool I could use for this thing. Well, how much time do you have? Yeah, exactly. You should see the Kenna Metal book. Oh, yeah. Brutal. Yeah. And if it was possible to build a tool that understood the Kenna Metal catalog 
and had an extensive knowledge base to draw from on the background to be able to understand and explain in a conversational way SFM and chip thinning and heat management and the various advantages of different types and arrangements of flutes and geometry and all this stuff and recommendations for work holding and coolant combination, all this stuff. The ability for those companies to scale the technical expertise that they already possess. If you make a tooling expert have the same conversation a thousand times, that tooling expert gets completely burnt out. Mm -hmm. But if you can find a way to have an AI have that conversation with 98% fidelity, Mm -hmm. the value of having that tool accessible, because if I'm shopping for tooling at two o'clock in the morning, I'm in my shop and I'm online looking for something, there's no one home at Kenna Metal. Right. But if there was a resource that I could talk to that could really help me sort through and say, okay, I've got a BT30 machine. My max collet size is X. I don't want the tool needs to stick out only this far. And I'm cutting this kind of material and I'm holding it this way. And it could say, well, we, we have indexables that can do that. You can also get some solid carbide. Do you have through spindle coolant on your machine? Like it could prompt you with questions you wouldn't even necessarily have thought of. Sure. That I look at that and go, there are unbelievable opportunities to take wasted time and lost information. Yeah. And valet it. Concierge deliver the right information to the person at the right time. And that for companies that jump on that well, because if you just take a chatbot and turn it on on the Kenamental site, heck, they may even have one right now. I'm curious. Well, while you look, let me tell you my experience with that. So we went with Freshdesk because they had probably the most advanced AI, the system called Freddy. Yep. And so I thought, okay, this is great. We plugged in some things and it was great. We also had running parallel a knowledge base. So we had for many years a Google Sheet page with different tabs at the bottom for the different product lines. And then our common questions, like in column A, and then answers in column B, long answers in column B, short answers in column C links to articles or videos in column D. And we plugged that into our knowledge base. It was really easy. And I wanted, you know, the Freddie or any type of AI to go watch and use every single one of my YouTube videos as a reference. And there's its own knowledge base. What started to happen is whenever you would start to ask a question or type a question in, it would suggest articles and solutions. And and this is a typical, it's not the AI version, this is the knowledge-based responding that would suggest different articles that made our products seem ridiculously problematic. Like it would suggest articles or just little snippets for very, very obscure problems that we could easily solve that we recorded in our spreadsheet that we imported into our knowledge base. And I said, this makes the product seem ridiculously problematic. If I were a customer, I would never buy this. So yeah, I don't know. It had all the information, but that information was not weighted properly. It wasn't weighted properly. And like one thing is like I would type in, we finally turned it off because it was we were running kind of an in-house beta. One of our most common questions for vacuum systems is how deep do I need to cut the slot in one of our in one of your customizable top plates? And it would suggest really dumb things like I can't even remember, but it didn't suggest the proper answer. And I go, nope, it's a, what it's the term hallucinating. It's giving answers to problems that don't exist, or it's giving wrong answers. 
it's got to go. So I don't know. We're in the process of like redoing, thinking, do we redo the knowledge base? Because that is like, if I log on to a website and I'm looking for information at 1 a.m. and there's a knowledge base, I know that I could probably find something that's going to help me, but I won't click on a chat bot at 1 a.m. because I know it's going to probably give me bad information or send me in an endless loop or not understand and then try and connect me with a representative that's still in bed. Yeah. I actually went on the Ken Metal site and there's no chat window that pops up. But if you scroll all the way to the bottom, there's a phone number and then there's a box that says chat with an expert. Okay. And I clicked on it and immediately it gave me the, you've contacted us outside working hours. What it says (laughs) is, uh, message us, chat with experts. I am sorry you are reaching us outside of our working hours. Please reach out to us the next business day between 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Your conversation has ended. <laughs> and it just <laughs> cuts you off. And <laughs> I'm done speaking with you. Goodbye. Yes. <laughs> nobody home. So long. Uh, that's good. If I were trying to actually find something out, I needed to find it out soon. That's a dead end. Yep. The automation of knowledge it's not about machines knowing. I don't use Siri. Mm-hmm. I don't use Siri at all for anything. I don't have an Alexa. I don't currently use basically any voice commanded technology. And my kids love Siri. They think Siri is really fun. They don't have their own phones yet, but my sons are starting to get, have more of an interest in football. And one of the questions they consistently ask is they ask their mom if they can use her phone for a minute. And then they ask it, Siri, who won the 49ers game yesterday? Mm -hmm. Siri, what was the score in this game or that game? And for them, like that knowledge is unmediated. They don't have to get on the internet and go to Google. They just ask the question as it occurs to them, and this machine tells them the answer. Sure. And the extent to which we will be able to increasingly take the knowledge that expert people have and make it available to others is going to continue to be more and more wild. Mm -hmm. I kind of want to start a bot called Actually Practical Machinist and have (laughs) Actually Practical Machinist be able to tell you all the obscure knowledge without any of the obscure machinist attitude. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All chips, no crankiness. Yeah, right. Because that would be so incredibly helpful. Yeah. Anyway. It doesn't seem like a too far of a stretch. I know that practical machinists are like CNC zone. There's another one I can't think of. If someone posts a question and the answer is crappy, people can downvote or down. You should have a, oh, what does China do? Uh, like a Social citizenship score. score. I'm in favor of people being able to be upvoted or downvoted and have reputation points on a specific local site, bounded area yeah. that they voluntarily choose to participate in. Yeah. Certainly. Right. And I'm active in some Facebook groups where you can get subject matter expert badges, okay. essentially. Right. Once you provide enough good answers or you publish enough long form posts on a certain topic and those get upvoted, you can get certain things that show up on your profile in that group. Mm-hmm. So when you're quickly scanning through a list of comments on something, you can see who the consistent poster heavy hitters are who are weighing in, and they only get and maintain that status by consistently providing good 
relevant information in the group. Yeah. Yeah. Let me backtrack. I'm not advocating for that in society. What China? No, of course not. (laughs) But just to make sure. Yeah. We're not wacko futurists who want AI social credit scoring people. Right. I just don't want the top five posts or replies in a practical machinist thread to be snarky, salty sea dogs spewing their junk. Yeah. Like people with a good reputation that A, on other threads, and then B, has it been upvoted in this thread? Like I'm on an Apple discussion. My boys have iPads. I have an iPad mini basically to manage their, what is it, screen time or something like that. Yep. And the iPads just don't work. They don't limit stuff. I'm like, you've been playing Minecraft for three hours. How did that happen? Like it's set for one hour per day. How, why is this broken? And it's just like this thread that literally has hundreds, three or 400 replies, but it's all the same people saying, Apple stinks. I'm having the same problem. Tried everything. Next one. I've tried everything. Apple stinks. And it's just, can we get some upvotes here? Does anybody have a solution that worked? Right. Yeah. If not, can you just press the ditto button? Yeah, exactly. On the first comment, just upvote that one. Let's not have 300 of the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah. Crowdsourcing. Anyway, I'm excited about the ability for small companies to use AI tools to take their particular expertise and make it scalable to a much wider audience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because if you've got real expertise, having a person who's willing to have the same repetitive conversations over and over and over again to spread that knowledge out, mm-hmm. that's a very, very hard, costly ask of yeah. somebody. And it's financially expensive for the company. Whereas when you can build an AI that can handle most, not all, but most of the frequent flyer questions, mm-hmm. That provides a ton of value just for the processing cost of running the AI, mm-hmm. yeah. which is dramatically lower than yeah. paying a person to answer those same questions yeah. or even just paying a person to trigger canned responses where you have an internal FAQ that you basically, hey, if somebody asks this question, here's our pre-written response that covers all those bases. Mm-hmm. The idea of using a person to trigger that response is insane. Yeah. Yeah. The extent that we've done, we've turned off the public facing knowledge base. And it's basically, for example, Manny, who's just expedites orders over the phone and email. He's not technical. He's not a machinist, has never been on our shop floor. In fact, he's at a satellite office in San Antonio, Texas. He couldn't see one of our machines if he wanted to. But if Manny can go in every morning, he starts a little bit earlier than everyone else. And when he gets that question email, he can just go to our existing knowledge base type in those. Well, it's not the first five bad answers on those obscure questions or problems. Here it is, copy paste. Zoho or uh, Zoho Desk. Yeah, it's called Desk. Suggests like it, it reads and it suggests articles and it's doing an okay job. But we're still in that middle spot that we have the centralized knowledge base that's been accumulated over years and years. We have the people that can accurately read and understand an email and then attach the two. But really, yeah, some type of AI should be able to do that, not Manny or Wyatt or even me. If I'm there and I just want to knock it out, I've written this reply at least 20 times 10 years ago, and then I got smart and turned it into a template. You do that. You go do that, Zoho Desk. (laughs) You figure it out. That's what we're working through now. But the goal is better customer service sooner with more accurate more relevant targeted information. Yeah. Because even when I write a templated response, hey, so-and-so asked a question about this. Here's my blunderbuss answer template that covers the 10 most common things that get discussed. Well, 
actually parsing out their answer and answering the specific single thing they're asking and giving them a more condensed answer because mm-hmm. you're not trying to answer every possible related question all at once mm-hmm. makes the chance that they'll actually read it and understand it and benefit from it even higher. Mm-hmm. So it can be better quality, more targeted communication with the same expertise and relevance behind it. I'm really excited about it. I don't, yeah. I haven't started building an AI really for our company yet, but I have my eye on that space because I want our customer service experience to be better yeah. than it currently is. I also want to not have to be answering all those emails myself or paying one of my staff to do it Right when there's the same emails over and over and over yeah. and over. You know what you should do if you have not yet done it? Sign up or pay for ChatGPT, the 4.0 version. It's 20 bucks a month because they do- you're on it. Yeah. Because yep. it's a good first step because you can give it like it data sets. Like you can say, here, read this email, just letting you know this email thread. I've not currently harnessed that, but it is more powerful than the free 3.0 or 3.5 version that's public facing yep. and free. But it is one of those things that it has significantly greater capability. In one of our convened monthly meetings, we had an AI expert come in and talk with this expert. He guy was like 22 years old and building AI stuff. But he said, look, for most of you, I think you can get the most amount of mileage out of just paying for chat GPT 4.0, using it, becoming an expert. It's like you can get a lot of use out of Gmail and the interface and mastering those hotkeys instead of using Outlook or something like that or your phone. It's one of those things that I'd encourage a lot of people to jump into because the more people that are using it, hopefully a greater sense of people are going to share that data. Certainly you and I want to be proponents of sharing that data, help people take their businesses to the next level. But yeah, I would highly recommend 4.0 paying for that 20 bucks a month. I mean, 30 years ago, getting a website was seen as this weird thing. Oh no, people want to pick up the phone and talk to a live person and place their order. No one wants to order online. No, that was an obvious change. It was a net benefit to almost everybody. And so we've inexorably moved in that direction. AI in repetitive customer service is going to be exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're going to get to the point where we're going to be annoyed that we have to talk to a real person if we have what we interpret to be a fairly routine question for a company, because mm-hmm. we're going to expect that the AI is going to respond faster, less likely to make a mistake, and will give us a consistent answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where you might catch a person on a bad day. Yeah. Just went through a breakup, didn't sleep well, hasn't had their coffee right. or their day drinking. Right. And they just, they're just not in good shape. Or the company's uh. closed. <laughs> the data is pretty clear. It's in, the, it's in the mid to high 70s of people that would rather be on a website looking for the data for 10 minutes rather than call the first phone number and ask the question. Just society's tipped towards that. Like if I go into, I don't really eat fast food, but if I went into a fast food place and there's a digital kiosk that I could order or I could yep. go up to a counter, I'm probably going to go with the kiosk or order on my phone. Like I never order at a counter. If I want Chipotle, I'm ordering on the app and I'm going to go pick it up. That type of thing. Hmm. I just don't want to stand in line. Well, it's wasted wasted motion. There's a lot of waste, <laughs> lean waste in that. The other thing it reminds me of, I can't remember if I told this on the podcast, but when I had my, let's see, two shops ago, I had unit E on Runway Street and we were expanding and I realized that I needed another unit and you don't just get the next door unit, but the company that was there in unit F was a printer, toner, and ink cartridge company. I was being friendly with them. We'd see them. Obviously, we're next door neighbors. And one day I walked in and I said, hey, I think the guy's name was Ron. 
I actually need some, some toner for my printer. Can I buy it on your website? Or he's like, oh, no, no, just tell me the name of your printer. I'll handle it. Okay, great. You know, what is your website, by the way? Because if I want to buy stuff, I'll tell my wife to buy from you. Oh, no, no, we don't have a website. I went, why do you do business? And he said, we do business with a handshake and a smile. And right when he said that, I thought, I'm going to get unit F very soon. And they were there not even six more months and their business like went to zero. And this was like in 2015, 16, something like that. And we expanded into it and it was instrumental to get that unit. And I knew when he said we do business with a handshake and a smile, he's not moving into this century. Then I always try and turn around those data points on me. It's not like, hey, I'm super smart and I'm doing everything right in this century. Like, What are the technologies? Where is the industry going? What's the mindset of the next generation stepping into these shoes? Where are we doing business with a handshake and a smile rather than the way that people want to be done business with? That question of what are my current blind spots where the industry is moving out from under me and I'm not aware of it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's sobering to think about because even the smallest, most nimble companies do not ever cover all the bases. Right. Yeah. Well, a good read would be Good to Great by Jim Collins. He addresses that. All the good companies, they don't sit on existing technology. They're always looking for ways to advance their systems. Yep. I think I'm going to order one of these offices that I talked about on the last podcast. Nice. What size? Single, double, quad, or a six-seater? So a lot of them are like four sizes. Like you have your single phone booth, and then you have your double, which is a little bit bigger for two people. And then you have your four-person or your six to eight. I think I would just go with the six to eight because it's a better value per square foot. And really just for air circulation, it's just nice. Yeah, keep in mind, we're going to put this upstairs on top of our heavy-duty assembly room. It can support the weight. It's fine. I might as well go for it. The price difference would be, I think I saw a price. There's a lot of companies that make them, but you know, like the third tier might be like 10,000 and the fourth tier might be 12,000 for yep. 30, 40% more space. I think I would just go that direction. Get the bang for the buck. Exactly. So Makes sense as long as you have space to put it in and it's not going to be its own problem. That's right. Mm-hmm. But no, I'd never even considered one of those little standalone pots. It's a really cool idea. Yeah. I wonder where I would put one in mm. my shop if I had one now. One company even has outdoor pots that are heated and cooled. Maybe outside, Fancy. Andrew. Yeah, probably not going to do that. All but right. it certainly gives me things to think about. The idea of having there be effective, sound-controlled meeting space that's able to be moved basically anywhere in the facility. Because if I need to take a Zoom call... I got to go hole up somewhere off the production floor because it's loud. Yeah, exactly. And the idea that I could sit there and take a Zoom call and still be in the mix, Uh but people could also see that I'm on a Zoom call without having to open the door and be like, hey, oh, sorry, you're on a Zoom call. Exactly. Yeah. We have do not disturb vests, which culturally they haven't really been adopted because it still feels like kind of a jerk thing to do. But if I had these single occupant sound booths, these office pods, Hey, if a dude's in there, he just needs some peace and quiet. He's trying to knock out a program. Just leave him alone. He'll come out. So. Yeah. <laughs> He'll be there when he's ready. 